Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. This is your host, Phil Ord. And this is your co-host, Colby Kirk. On this episode, we are talking to Madison Hilly, the brains behind the advocacy effort called Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal. It's a master plan we desperately need to scale up nuclear electricity generation in the United States on a scale similar to the New Deal of the Great Depression. In our conversation, we dive into the inspiration for her movement, its overall strategy, the government's role in facilitating a green nuclear deal, how it relates to the touted Green New Deal, it being an alternative to renewable-only plans, and how it could add to the overall academic discussions about climate change mitigation. Here's some background on Maddie. In 2017, she received dual degrees in environmental science and political science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. After graduation, she then went to work full-time for Michael Schellenberger's Environmental Progress, EP, in Berkeley. As a researcher, Maddie conducted a comprehensive analysis on U.S. commercial nuclear power, making a database of all built or canceled nuclear plants and their building timelines. As executive vice president, she oversaw all of EP's research, engagement, and advocacy efforts. She has traveled around the world talking to journalists, policymakers, and members of the public about the need for nuclear power and has visited a number of operating and under construction nuclear plants. In late 2020, Maddie started the campaign for a green nuclear deal to articulate a new vision of nuclear growth in America. Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal accepts no industry or NGO contributions. It's funded by small donors and out-of-pocket money. This has been a mostly solo project, but she has worked with teams and individuals across the country and around the globe. Maddie definitely has developed an incredible amount of expertise, experience, and leadership in the nuclear advocacy realm. Her campaign represents an actual game plan U.S. nuclear advocates can point to in order to implement a nuclear-powered future that we support. All too often, the people spreading the word on how critical nuclear power is to lower emissions are on defense, constantly debunking misinformation, misconceptions, 
and sticking up for plants at risk of closing is important work. However, it's not enough. We've seen plenty of plants out there that lay out specific roadmaps that increase the use of renewable energy to decarbonize our society. Nuclear is often not even mentioned or shunned outright from such plans, so it's time we come up with our own. Maddie's helping lead the charge on such a project. Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal has the potential to really make some shockwaves in the discourse surrounding climate change mitigation. It could lead to cultural acceptance of nuclear as a cornerstone emissions reduction strategy instead of being reluctantly added as some small footnote. This could really change the tide in our fight against climate change that we seem to be struggling with in these times. Without further ado, here's Madison Hilly. Hey, Maddie. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a long time coming. Indeed. Definitely. So let's just start off simply. Uh, what led you to start the campaign for a green nuclear deal? Yeah, so between 2017 and 2020, my nuclear advocacy was taking me all over the world. I spent a lot of time focusing on Europe and Asia talking to journalists, policymakers, and members of the public about the need for nuclear. And the more time I spent learning about nuclear and then seeing it for myself in many of these countries, the more it became clear that a successful, growing nuclear industry often enjoys a national commitment to a nuclear program and broad social and political support. And we don't have that in the U.S., Rather than growing, the industry is in a state of managed decline. We have few experienced builders. Our supply chains are precarious. The opportunities are concentrated in incredibly expensive decommissioning. Plants like Indian Point that can and should continue to operate for decades are being shut down prematurely without technical or economic reason. And there's no initiative to capitalize on the delivery of two new reactors at Vogel. So back in 2020, when COVID kind of grounded me, I mean, physically, I could not travel. I was reflecting on all of this, and I didn't really see anyone articulating a practical vision for transitioning the U.S. nuclear industry from where it is now, frankly, the verge of collapse, to an industry capable of delivering all of the benefits that nuclear has to offer. So in late 2020, I decided to launch the campaign for a green nuclear deal to do just that. Awesome. So what is the overall goal and strategy of the green nuclear deal? So the target that I've created is to grow the share of U.S. electricity coming from nuclear to 50% by 2050. But really, the goal is to develop a serious nuclear program. At the moment, we don't have a program. We just have a bunch of one-off projects. Take the Apollo program, for example. The secret behind Apollo wasn't going to the moon once. It was going to the moon six times in three years. By the last time, it was so routine that news channels were barely covering it. It was no big deal. The spacesuits were lighter. There were hammocks for sleeping. They had a vehicle to drive around in. 
it was much different from the first mission. And then we stopped and we haven't gone back since. The difference with nuclear is what nuclear leaves behind after a program. So what would remain after an Apollo-style nuclear program is prosperity for 100 years. What we have to do is convince the public that this is as or more important than getting to the moon. So how do we do that? Well, the campaign for a green nuclear deal is a hearts and minds campaign. That means having open and honest conversations with communities, with policymakers, with journalists, but it also means doing the research and analyses necessary to support ambitious but realistic policy proposals. That's pretty good, because uh, we, we hear from the conventional Green New Deal that solar and wind seems to be taking center stage, but you make a great point seeing that that's with nuclear, it's an investment for the next 100 years where those plants are still going to be operating and there's going to be an entire industry, a prosperous industry built up around it, where solar and wind, those assets need to get rebuilt themselves every you know 15 to 25 years, uh, depending on you know where they are and what the conditions are. Uh, so you make a great point with that. Do you have a uh, any sort of like capacity numbers and uh, actual like numbers of what you want to add and when? That is coming. So I have launched the campaign to first step is sort of the change hearts, do the comms that need to be done. But what I've been working on for the past two years are different policy proposals, tackling different aspects of what a nuclear program will need to have. So from regulation to actual construction, you know, 50% by 2050 sounds nice and round. And a lot of people say, well, that's not really ambitious. But if you know anything about nuclear, 50% yeah. by 2050 is still going to be hard as hell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, the, uh, the green nuclear deal, the, um, the renewables only crowd seems to want to push solar and wind uh, and like have that be the center stage or have, have that be the only assets within the renewables portfolio be the only solutions in how our country deals with climate change in our energy sector. Um, so I really like the idea of the green nuclear deal as far as um, are you putting nuclear as basically like the full dominant energy technology to put forward or is is, is there some uh, flexibility with other assets on, on board? Yeah. So, you know, comparing the green nuclear deal to the green new deal, it is a difference in technology. And frankly, that leads to a difference in feasibility and the politics required. So how is the green nuclear deal different? Well, it's that the green nuclear deal works and exists today. France, Ukraine, Taiwan, Lithuania, Belgium, Hungary, Sweden, Switzerland, Bulgaria, South Korea. These are all countries that at some point have gotten more than 40% of their electricity from nuclear for at least a year and often for many years and decades in a row. Here are the countries that have gotten 50% or more of their electricity from wind and solar ever. Denmark. That's it. And Denmark did that by A, being a small country, B, 
being in the center of a lot of other countries with big power sources. So nuclear from Finland, hydro from Sweden, coal from Germany. And C, by continuing to burn fossil fuels for the rest of its electricity needs. So that's one big difference. Another thing is that the Green New Deal relies on making big changes in people's lives. Almost all of these changes end up being worse for the people involved and for society. What do I mean by it requires changes? I mean it reduces flexibility. It requires reduced option value in people's lives. That means reduced ability to decide when to do your laundry, to decide when to make a meal for your family, to decide when to be cold and when to be hot. So the green nuclear deal creates a system that works for society rather than requiring society to work for the system. That's a good way to put it for sure. And one thing that kind of speaks to this is the idea of decreased energy use. A lot of people just aren't going to give up their their livelihoods for the climate, you know? Absolutely. I mean, there's a sort of hierarchy of um, energy attributes. One, that energy is reliable. Two, that energy is affordable. And three, that energy is sustainable. And the priorities are in that order. So at the end of the day, if energy isn't reliable or you know, abundant and easily accessible, we're not going to get to the part where we deal with climate change. Exactly. So I guess one thing that will come into people's mind is is the cost. That seems to be the, the main anti-nuclear talking point these days. And given cost overruns and the delays from, you know, the plants being built in Georgia, the only ones under construction right now in America, how do we get more people on board into considering the cost for this? Yeah. So I want to go back to the metaphor that I used before, which is for the Apollo program. Our earliest missiles blew up and the Soviets laughed at us and we lost astronauts along the way to getting to the moon. You know, there are always going to be significant growing pains and I don't want to minimize that. But the question becomes, how much do we believe in the mission? And that's my job, you know, to, to change hearts and, hearts and minds, to inspire people to believe in the mission. Now, more concretely, Vogel coming online in a few months is going to heal a lot of wounds and I think is going to um, dampen a lot of these talking points. Why? Because right now there isn't an alternative to what Vogel is going to provide for Georgia. And a lot of that is we're entering a new time for energy. Gas is no longer historically cheap. We've seen electricity markets blow up in our face. So I think having this project come to fruition and, you know, crank out abundant, affordable, clean power is going to really get people's attention. That makes sense. It's one of those things, like you say, it's Vogel was a resurrection of 
building new nuclear for the first time in what, like 40 years and 30 years even. Right. And uh, it, it's it's going to be expensive because it's just learning how to do it all over again. And I don't know, in my mind, um, it seems like instead of just like giving up, we need to be like, okay, let's build more Vogels now. And then, right. and then the cost will go down. Do you, do you see if we commit to a large nuclear build out that the green nuclear deal call that the green nuclear deal calls for? Do you see those costs and build times decreasing? Yeah, I mean, to your point, we've already done the or done a a, a significant amount of the painful, expensive part. And we're going to lose that and have to start over yet again if we fail to capitalize on the experience and the workforce that we've developed at Vogel. So to answer your question, can we see cost declines and um, build times go down if we commit to building more. Yes. And we don't even have to guess. That's what we've seen in every country that has committed to a program of building many reactors of the same standardized design. You know, you don't have to be a, a raging you rah rah America patriot to believe that, yeah, Americans are going to get better with practice, but that comes from having a program and not a bunch of one-off novel projects. Right, like a actual plan like the infamous French Mesmer plan and stuff. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and so do you, I mean, I, I know some of these main details are not really, uh, you haven't really quite hammered them out yet because you're doing the public relations stuff kind of first. Uh, do you, what design you would, like to see built most of the time? So that's a, that's a good question. I would say that I have at least, um, in my mind, a formula for what becomes easiest to do for a serious nuclear program in the U S. So first of all, the, the, you know, the most important nuclear in America is the nuclear that we already have. So that means protecting each and every plant that we have online and, you know, committing to life extensions for them. They are in excellent operating condition. They can go for decades longer. There's no, they're producing, I mean, no new technology can compete on existing nuclear for cost right now. So extending the lives of the plants that we already have, one. Two is, I would say, adding reactors to the plants that we already have. You know, we know that these are facilities that already operate nuclear. They're approved plant sites. They already have to have a lot of the, like, some, you know, the, the costs that will already be there, like security, like waste management, monitoring, blah, blah, blah. And many of them were designed to hold more reactors that ended up getting built. And you have the transmission there, the infrastructure. It just makes a lot of sense. And I think um, whatever that design needs to be, it needs to be a copy and paste of the same, whatever we pick. I think there are reasons 
like the completion of Vogel to go with the AP 1000. It's a U.S. design. We have built it most recently, but it could even be a an older vintage, or maybe it's the Palo Verde APR 1400, whatever it is, we copy and paste large light water reactors there. And then again, I, uh, not exactly, I don't exactly care which design we go with, but I think it would be great to standardize a smaller reactor that we can drop in at retiring coal plants. So that again, you're taking advantage of the existing infrastructure with, uh, and not um, leaving these energy communities out to dry. For sure. I agree. And there's, you know, an industrial uh, intelligence at play with um, the first of a kind versus nth of a kind in, in the production line, where you already said we made the heavy investment in, in making all the mistakes and figuring out uh, how to get over the barriers to entry and getting Vogel to be constructed. And now that we've done that once, we we just need to copy and paste that and and scale up from there. Um, and that's a very important point when it comes to seeing future cost decreases. Right, and that's not to say that we will never have what you know people are calling advanced reactors. You know, the people who are first to the advanced reactors are Russia and China, which have serious nuclear programs built on continuing to deploy their large light water designs. So innovation and technological progress comes from industries that are experienced and growing rather than ones that are just trying to leapfrog into technological progress. Right. We do have a legacy here with that. And so... That's another interesting point with how different countries are handling their nuclear programs, because in America, we seem to rely a lot on you know the private sector, and there's always going to be a different type of relationship between the public and private sector with um, uh, how different countries do energy. So to what extent would the campaign for a green nuclear deal uh, involve top-down government leadership? Well, it certainly won't work without it. That would be the first priority of the government is to just define the program, define the mission. And then it can do things like back up ultra long-term electricity contracts. We see that in other countries. It can create federal carve-outs for nuclear power from all of the electricity markets. It can greatly increase the NRC's budget while also increasing the urgency and expectations that are put on the staff. So that's an example of things that I think Americans would see as good top-down government leadership without being a fully, you know, state-owned and operated nuclear industry. So you still see a pretty heavy place for the private sector to to be involved with this camp, uh, build out. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the private sector is going to be responsible for delivering on the program. So they would build the nuclear. They would hire and train workers. It's their job to get better at constructing plants and also to provide capital, even if the U.S. government does take a state. We want the largest pension funds and asset managers on board because they're representing the financial interests of tens of millions of Americans without whose involvement, 
this would not be a national program. Right. Yeah. So the, uh, I was going to say to kind of be in the spirit of the, the new deal of the great depression, it would definitely be good to have, you know, maybe, you know, the private sector, of course, building the machines and, uh, training the people, but do you think it should be some sort of like jobs program kind of like we had, you know, to get out of the, get out of the depression? I mean, certainly if we're going to build out nuclear in the way that the campaign for a green nuclear deal is advocating for, we are going to need a, a major part of that policy is how do we train up a workforce to do that? That's going to require a lot of people. And I'm, you know, very optimistic about it because these are high paying high production, good jobs, often union jobs. And we, especially if we're going to be moving away from fossil fuels, there are going to be a lot of people who are looking for those sorts of jobs as a replacement to what they've spent their lives up to this point doing. Yeah. Like I can just imagine a a system where people are, um, you know, instead of necessarily pushed into kind of some useless, like bachelor degree programs and like now, I shouldn't say useless, but, you know, like... I mean, some of them are, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not a lot of people are, are coming back, from going, graduating from college and realizing, dang, I don't really even have a marketable skill even. So it would be cool to see, like, a, a big movement of people outside of, right out of high school. Totally. You know, like learning we, these, we, le- yeah, learning to yeah. do, like, these, these, like, heavy jobs, like welding, pipe fitting, uh, you know, uh concrete work, electrical jobs, you know? Totally. We need to invest in our trades in this country. There's just been a total lack of investment. And part of that, I think there's some, I don't know exactly how it came to be, but there's this stigma against trades. It's something you do if you can't get a four-year bachelor's degree. And I think that desperately needs to change if we're going to invest in infrastructure in this country, certainly for nuclear, but just, at, you know, um, even more broadly. For sure. Um, yeah. And I think something like a green nuclear deal would be a great way to, uh, put the people to work, you know, as a, it's a good, you know, way to exercise that muscle, you know? So. Yeah. And I mean, nuclear, we have the ben- nuclear has the benefit of being an advantageous industry meaning that if you have a healthy, successful nuclear industry, it makes it a lot easier to have healthy, successful, growing other industries in your country. Definitely. Um, So kind of back to the idea of uh, like the green nuclear deal in relation to what we call the Green New Deal. Uh, Do you think it is a mistake to have the green nuclear deal Uh, be separate from the idea of a Green New Deal? So as as I mentioned before, I think these two policy plans are fundamentally incompatible. And in part, that's because our ability to create a just transition away from fossil fuels is inseparable from our technology choice. Each energy source has a better or worse potential to create jobs, to support communities, to develop domestic supply chains, et cetera. 
And, you know, anyways, the Green New Deal appears to be politically toxic now. So I'm happy to hijack and rehabilitate the phrase and the program. Well said. Um, it's kind of cool that you might, this might be a way to, getting a little bit political here, it might be a way to see whether the more conservative wing will actually promote nuclear as a you know large policy agenda instead of just say oh how come the other side doesn't support nuclear we'll be able to see if if they'll really support right. something like that because i think i think republicans could start saying things like green nuclear deal and make it become a popular idea and almost a populist goal of the right wing well, what do you think about something like that yeah, I mean, I think there is potential for a lot of common ground in nuclear, right? I mean, it solves or it's combating climate change and providing unparalleled environmental protection in a public-private program, all things that the left are asking for. And it also creates really good jobs in middle America. It answers the question, where do fossil fuel workers go? It's a big investment in the trades and industrial industry and, you know, making America great again, which is what the right is asking for. So there's a lot of reason to believe that they could come together on a green nuclear deal, but it's also time to, you know, put up or shut up. It's not enough to just talk about it. We actually need to do something about it. Exactly. Um, do you have something to add, Colby? Absolutely. Yeah. The because um, uh, <laughs> you need bipartisan support for something of this magnitude, and if if you have something that both sides want and are willing to get on board with, that's what you need to move forward. And um, yeah. Now, now the question is, how do we go from talking to doing? And um, as somebody who, who authors reports and likes, you know, digging around in the scientific literature, uh, to me, I see a lot of, uh, NGOs, academics, and institutions putting out these, you know, renewable only roadmaps, which are hugely problematic on the methodological basis. Um, but it's, it's kind of concerning to see a lack of plans for a, nu a full nuclear roadmap, which, it, I mean, from the from the math and models I've done is very feasible, um, but it's uh, that type of visibility is not really seen in the literature. So um, do you have as part of your campaign a plan to sort of publish those or put out and do the math and show how this can be done? I'm going to be honest with you. I would rather swim real deep in a spent fuel pool than get involved in academic exercises. I would rather dig a waste repository for this country by hand than get involved in the broken peer review process. But in all seriousness, I think to, to answer your question, first of all, why are we seeing so many plans for a completely renewable or wind water battery energy system? And uh, I'm going to quote a, a mathematician and, you know, philosopher, our modern day philosopher, Nassim Tlaib, who said, in academia, there is no difference between academia and the real world. And in the real world, there is. 
And, you know, it's really highlighting the fact that most of the academics putting these papers out have absolutely no responsibility for executing or maintaining their visions in the real world. And we have to ask, you know, the, the academics who are getting the money to do these studies, where does that come from? It comes from industries that are trying to break into the, to our future plans, to our energy space. Whereas nuclear is almost doing is almost never doing anything except for merely trying to exist in the shadows. So that's why you see far less of those models or papers for nuclear. You know, this reminds me of an anecdote from my friend and former colleague at Environmental Progress, Mark Nelson. So he was EP's advising representative to the MIT Future of Nuclear Study released in, I think it was 2018. And they showed him a high nuclear scenario that included an amount of nuclear that was a fraction of the real world examples that we already talked through, while including an amount of renewables that would be historically unprecedented. And that was the high nuclear scenario. The low nuclear Mm -hmm. scenario was just like off in la-la land. And I bring this up not to say that things that don't exist can't exist. Otherwise, I wouldn't be fighting for a green nuclear deal. But what I'm saying is that there are inherent physical reasons why ultra-high penetration of renewables in multiple countries, higher than Denmark's world record of 50%, which is almost boring by nuclear standards, is foolish Mm -hmm. at best and flatly impossible at worst. So there have been studies done, I think, on this, on this topic for nuclear. I think there, there was a paper published in Nature Energy earlier this year called something like Stylized Least Cost Analysis of Flexible Nuclear Power in Decarbonized Electricity Systems. So it, it does exist, but I think more importantly, policymakers respond to public sentiment. And as I said before, public, the public cares that energy is reliable, affordable, and sustainable, and in that order. Now that gas is expensive and electricity markets have demonstrated the dangers of gambling with your energy needs, the public is asking for alternatives. They are, they're much smarter than academics give them credit for. So I don't think that papers discussing theoretical systems are going to meet that need. I think, again, putting up or shutting up is the next step. Yeah, and the the people aren't stupid because I think people are starting to realize that, hey, there's something up with grids that try to just blindly push the uh, intermittent renewables, such as wind and solar, because they – they see things like blackouts in California and they see mm-hmm. their grid just not being able to cope with things in Texas. And I think people are starting to realize that, Hey, maybe relying on these sources of power, it's just not going to work for the grid. And I think, I think we, do you think that we'll have to see more uh, grid failures for people to really kind of galvanize against, I mean, not against, but, for the more reliable sources like nuclear? 
I certainly hope not because, you know, blackouts are incredibly dangerous. I think we've taken for granted the electricity system that we've built in this country. And people forget that when it's hot and you don't have power, people die. And when it's cold and you don't have power, people die. And so, yeah, I think it's funny looking at Texas because there's a lot of you know, chatter and arguing online on Twitter specifically, like, you know, who's to blame over Texas? Well, it couldn't possibly be the wind because we knew that it was reliably unreliable and we knew it could fall to 3% of its capacity. And, you know, people who live in Texas see that fossil fuels provide the energy they need round the clock and suddenly they're having blackouts. Again, people aren't stupid. Um, so again, I really hope, especially if there's a silver lining to the energy crisis happenings, especially in Europe and, um, the, the global order that's now we're, we're coming into, I think it's that we're being forced to reckon with the decisions that we've made over the past 20 years and get serious about what does energy security actually mean? What does reliable, affordable power actually look like in today's world? What does not compromising our independence while maintaining a world-class grid actually mean for us those are valid points when it comes to energy policy and grid reliability it's it's not just the inconvenience of having the lights go out it's life or death yeah. um, and that ha that's a serious implication and you're right i think a lot of people in the industrialized world just get used to electricity being a default and they don't realize how bad things can go when you know we lose that uh that luxury of our lives um, so, uh, with all these renewable heavy grids that are going to become more and more vulnerable to, uh, extreme weather, extreme conditions, and all these renewable advocates who are saying, oh, don't worry about intermittency. We can just do demand response or use less. Well, we're now going to see the real world consequences of those dismissals and, and that is going to start affecting people's lives. So, um, yeah, yeah. Definitely, I definitely see that. And I just I mean, want to clarify. Oh, oh, sorry, really quick. Ahead, I, just want to, I just want to clarify that technically, yes, the wind not blowing wasn't the cause of the grid problem in Texas, but the system around integrating the renewables, especially with the just-in-time gas delivery. Uh, people could learn more about this and. Uh, this the great book by Meredith Engwin, Shorting the Grid. But um, it, it, it's because we we had to rely on this secondary source of energy to back up the the renewables that just was pushed beyond the breaking point. It almost it almost in a way weakened the uh, fossil fuel backup in a way. So I just want to clarify that. No, I'm because people are right to say be like. Oh, the, the people are dumb when they blame this all on renewables. Well, it's not just the renewables themselves; it's the it's the system we had a. I mean, they they right. designed around it, you know. Well, yes, but yes, and 
it's important to see what worked because there were, there were problems across the board, right? But it's important to look at what still managed to deliver. And yes, the, the gas, absolutely. The fossil fuel thermal plants, you know, went down and had a worse record than the nuclear plants, but they were still providing power through. So it's not enough to just say, okay, who fell, who, who fell below expectations, but also take for granted, not take for granted. Okay. But who was actually able to still provide power through the crisis? Right. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the end, energy is the lifeblood of society. And so saying, that's like saying, you know, to a breathing human, well, we'll just have to try to figure out how we, how to live on less oxygen. You know, it doesn't, (laughs) it has real disastrous consequences. And, and that's part of why the markets have been so bad for energy is because they've been saying, how do we, how do we make sure we never have access to more oxygen than we absolutely need at any given time? And, you know, oxygen is one of those things that at, when you need it, you better have enough of it. Right. Same with All, energy. The time. <laughs> All the time. You, I'd rather have way more than I need than even slightly less than what I need. Yeah. I mean, like I, even look at, at a system where we do do nuclear, we're going to, especially when we're going to deal with heat waves and air conditioning use and uh, cold snaps uh, because of the, uh, you know, changes in the climate. Yeah. We're going to have to probably have quite a bit of nuclear on reserve too, to really be able to uh, take these increases of energy use. Cause I think what climate change is showing people is we're actually going to start needing to use more energy just to survive it, you know? Yeah. I mean, if the future is, if we want to head for a decarbonized, cleaner future, we are going to have to use much, much more energy than we're currently using today. Not less, or much, much more electricity, but also energy, especially if we care about lifting people out of poverty. You know, there's still, I think, a little less than a billion people without energy access. And I care about lifting them into high energy, prosperous lifestyles. And if that's one of your values, then you have to acknowledge that we need much more energy than we're using right now. Right. Absolutely. With electrification, displacing fossil fuels and uh, other processes and transportation, there's like a much bigger pie in how society uses fossil fuels. And if we want to start replacing that with clean energy, electrification and other heat uh, process, heat and uh, other applications of nuclear um, is going to basically increase the reactor count we'll be needing. So... Um, was, was there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Um, I guess I'd just like to thank all of the campaign for a green nuclear deals, donors and supporters, you know, CGND doesn't accept industry or NGO money. This work is funded by small donors pledging on Patreon. And then the rest, my husband and I pay out of pocket. So if you like what I'm doing, you want to support the campaign, help boot 
build this movement, you can make a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash green nuclear deal. I think the average donation is about $10 a month, but seriously, everything helps um, and allows this campaign to remain independent. And then to learn more about me and my work and about nuclear, you can follow me on Twitter at Maddie Hilly, M-A-D-I-H-I-L-L-Y. And you can also check out my website at gndcampaign.org. And then thank you both so much for inviting me on the show. I, I had a great time, short conversation, but a spicy one, I think. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. Yes, thank you. It's been great. That was a great conversation. Matty Zero has a bold vision for the future of nuclear power deployment in America. Absolutely. It's the kind of campaign we need to really get a handle on the climate issue. We have a massive amount of fossil fuels to displace, and quickly. 50% nuclear by 2050 in the United States would take a huge bite out of emissions. I really enjoyed hearing about the Green Nuclear Deal as separate from the Green New Deal, because they both are underscored by different philosophies. The Green New Deal is geared towards adapting our lives around the energy system, while the Green Nuclear Deal is geared towards adapting our energy system around our lives. That was brilliantly stated. I like seeing math and models to demonstrate feasibility of climate change mitigation strategies. And nuclear-dominant roadmaps have very little visibility in the literature compared to all of the 100% renewable roadmaps out there. When the math can show how nuclear-dominant plans can work while the renewables-only plans cannot, it's important to push for the visibility of nuclear-dominant strategies, both in the literature and in the political ecosystem. We really appreciate what Maddie is doing, and it gives us nuclear advocates a lot of inspiration to keep up our work. The Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal will hopefully gather traction, and we wish the best for her mission. We want to thank her again for coming on the podcast, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Climate Fix. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per-episode basis with Patreon. Link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, visit our website at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees, to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you can email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time. Edited and produced by Jonna Adams.